All right, so it's time for us to begin. I, uh, we're at the customary part where I usually will share a book recommendation. I'm going to do something a little different. I don't usually handle reference books and wave reference books for you. But I'm going to recommend to you guys, I think every home... I'm trying to decide if I want to state it as definitively as I'm saying this. But homes should have a Bible atlas in them. So that when your kids ask you questions about where is this place, where is this location, what was Paul's missionary journey, where is Lystra, I've never heard of that place. You can have something that you can refer your kids to or yourself to. So... When I preached through the book of Acts, I just basically lived with this constantly open in front of me because I needed to be able to visualize the journeys. In fact, we're going to be talking about those this morning. So as I was preparing our lesson for today for Sunday school and I was going back over the material, I found myself reaching for this and reminding myself of exactly how these what the maps are and being rem- remembering what the Middle East looks like, especially the way it looked in the time in which Paul is going on his missionary journeys. So when you look at this book, though, there's actually a ton of text. So, yeah, it's called a Bible atlas, but essentially what they do is they're giving you maps, photographs, pictures of specific regions during specific times. They're giving you illustrations of what did Jerusalem look like during this time. What did the temple look like? They're giving you pictures, things that are really helpful to visualize what we're talking about when you're in the text of scripture. And so you're not just talking about a Bible atlas. You're really just looking at anything in the New Testament or the Old Testament that you might have trouble visualizing that gets a description in the text or that we have geographic knowledge of. Those end up here somewhere in the book. Some of the things that are my favorite, for example, you have uh, pictures of Roman roads that still exist today that would have existed in Paul's day. And so when you look in here, you can see pictures of the same roads still existing. And there is something that helps you embody in your mind. Our imagination, actually, a sanctified imagination is important for reading scripture. And that's exactly what this helps you with, this kind of book. So... I'm just going to pass this around. You ever wonder, hey, what's the tabernacle look like? Well, here, you got a great picture of it um, with as much detail and references showing you where they get the detail that they include from. So you know that, they're, you know that, you know that this is not just artistic liberties being taken. Uh, when you get to the back of the book, you get to the actual atlas that it's helpful. But, you know, you could read through this whole thing and you would benefit tremendously just opening up and reading uh, just opening it up and reading, you get the narrative of, of the book of Acts, and it gets put in geographic terms. So this is just a great resource just to help you know your Bible better. So here it is, ESV Bible Atlas. Uh, see if you, can, if you can handle it. It's big. Yeah. See? See? This is what I'm talking about. Um, but last time when we were in the book of Acts, we stopped at chapter 12. One of the things I pointed out was that the book of Acts sort of features Peter prominently for the first 12 chapters. Then when you get from chapters 13 to 28, suddenly it's all about Paul. So, And that's exactly what I want to begin by pointing out this morning is that the book of Acts, beginning in chapter 13, takes the focus off of Peter. 
and the apostles and turns the lens onto Paul and his ministry, especially among the Gentiles. And the only, the only place Paul doesn't appear in all of the, the rest of the book from chapter 13 onward is four verses in chapter 18 where Apollos is in Ephesus. So they t- it's like they take these four verses, they do the Apollos thing, and then they go right back to Paul again. So the book is not actually highlighting the importance of Paul, though. And I really want to emphasize that. The reason why Paul is significant is because of who he's ministering to. Who is Paul ministering to in the second half of Acts? Gentiles. Gentiles. That's why Paul's important. Paul himself is just a man. He's just a messenger. But he is taking the gospel to the Gentiles. First, first 13 chapters, uh, very much focused on the spread of the gospel, moving outward from Jerusalem. But now here we are, chapter 13 onward, and the gospel is exploding out into the rest of the Mediterranean, uh, Asia Minor, and all the way as far as Rome. Uh, and so that's why Paul becomes such a focus of, uh, of the book, of the author. It's why Luke spends so much time with him. Also, let's face it, Luke was with Paul. So you can imagine, too, why the narrative would center around Paul. Uh, there are three missionary journeys that Paul goes on. Technically, if you count a, uh, a ride uh, in the paddy wagon to Rome, then there's actually four missionary journeys. Um, but Paul gets converted in Acts chapter 9. Uh, we're going to focus on this in the next class. What I'd like to do, uh, we're going to talk about Paul a little today, and we're going to talk about what happens in the book of Acts today. But the next two classes, we're going to talk about the life of Paul. The next class, what I'd like to do is focus on Paul's life before he gets converted. We actually know a lot about Paul. We can surmise a lot about Paul. We can learn a little bit about the man before he gets converted. And then in the next class, I want to talk about his conversion and specifically talk about his ministry and, and the work that he did. Because as we're reading his letters, it's important to know who he is. One of the things that differentiates Christianity, among many other things, one of the things that differentiates Christianity from Islam is if you pick up the Quran and you read it, you are reading a book that it does not matter who wrote it. At least that's the way that Islam traditionally thinks of it. Because it doesn't matter who Muhammad is. It doesn't matter what he thought. It doesn't matter what his opinion is. The only thing is he's like a conduit through which the text of the Quran comes to us is, is the way that Muslims traditionally think. So you don't, ex- you don't open up the Quran and say, what was Muhammad thinking? When we come to the New Testament, we very much ask those questions. What is Paul thinking? What's going on? What's happening in the, in the ancient world? What was happening in Ephesus during this time, right? We're asking biography-related questions about what's going on in the text. And so as Christians, when we go to read a book like Romans, or we go to read a book like 1 Timothy, it matters who he's writing to. It matters when he's writing. It matters what's going on in that given time. So we're going to give a lot of attention to Paul and his life because, well, let's face it, most of the New Testament is the writings of Paul. So we need to understand the man. Um, But he gets converted in Acts chapter 9. Um, converted from a life of, uh, what's the word? I don't know if I want to use the word radical, but he is just a consistent Jewish person. He's, he's strongly involved in Judaism. He cares about it. Uh, he's sold out. He's a Pharisee. Uh, he's so extreme. He's so radical that he approves of the murder of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. Uh, but then what happens with Paul? Paul becomes radically transformed. God changes his life entirely, uh, forcibly converts him. Uh, he is uh, initially 
He, he is so extreme in his Judaism that when Ananias even thinks of the idea of being around Paul, it terrifies him, right? He's scared. He doesn't want to meet this man. He says, Lord, I know this guy. He has a reputation. And so people are hesitant to, to, to meet with Paul, and Barnabas ends up vouching for him. When Paul is thinking about his life, his ministry, what he is called to, uh, he understands his life mission to be taking the gospel to the Gentiles. Uh, part of where you can, you can know that is it gets traced back to Acts chapter 9. So in Acts chapter 9, Ananias uh, is told something by God. God says to Ananias, he, Paul, is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So not all of us necessarily get told what the purpose of our life is when we get converted. Now, we all know that we exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But God generally doesn't go, hey, you, you're going to go do this. You're going to go do this. You have this purpose in your life. And yet he does for Paul. Paul gets this very explicit message. He is going to tell the Gentiles about Jesus. But you notice in those words to Ananias in Acts chapter 9, he also says something else. He says, and the children of Israel. So Paul is not going to the Gentiles to the exclusion of the Jews. Uh, And you see this in Paul's ministry. Every time that he goes to a new city, where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue, right? He goes to the synagogue. He wants to meet the Jewish leaders. Uh, When he goes to Rome, that's the first thing he does. He sends for the Jewish leaders. He wants to meet them first and make sure that the gospel is understood by them. And then his pattern is to always then take it to the Gentiles. Um, So there's this consistency across all the years of Paul's ministry. Um. I think Paul becomes a richer figure once we talk about his early life, so we'll save that for the next class. What I want to do this time is just talk about his missionary journey and the narrative that we get in Acts chapter 13 onward. In fact, here, let's just do this. (laughs) Um, So narratively, the first uh, missionary journey is in chapters 13 and 14. This is Paul and Barnabas. It's 14 years after Paul's conversion. There is a, there's a time jump from Acts chapter 9 to Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 9, he's a brand new believer. Acts chapter 13, he's been a Christian for about 14 years. And so you have this newly, uh, you have this mature, seasoned disciple of Jesus, and he's engaging. He's going out. He's taking the gospel. He's specifically doing it because he's directed to. In Acts chapter 3, he and Barnabas get set apart for this missionary journey. They're in the northeast Mediterranean. So when you think of Antioch, um, I don't have a map here in front of you, but one of you has one of you at a time can look and find the page. Uh, and there's a map. If, if we were to show you a map of the Mediterranean, I'm going to draw you the ugliest map of the Mediterranean you've ever seen. Uh, there you go. That's Greece. Isn't that great? And then that's Turkey. There you go. That's, that's the Mediterranean right there. And half of you can't even see it because of the podium. You know, Antioch is, is basically up here. And Antioch is the home base for Paul. Antioch is where the missionary journeys begin. And a good portion of them end in Antioch as well. Uh, oh, yeah, I can't forget Crete. Very realistic. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Was that too big or, or, or needs to be bigger? So what we really should have done was just hire one of you to come up and draw a carefully recreated map of the Mediterranean. But no, we didn't, I didn't do that. So what do they do? So Paul and Barnabas, they're commissioned to this work. They're told that they need to go. And so they travel on a circuit. They go from Antioch 
Yeah, I'll do a different color. I'll get fancy. Uh, they go from Antioch to the island of Cyprus. Uh, they actually go from one side of Cyprus to the other. They get to the other side of, of Cyprus. And then they go up to the mainland. And they work their way back to Antioch again. So they kind of go on a bit of a... I didn't draw that very good. But nothing here is good. So, um, But they go back to Antioch sort of in a big circle. And the first missionary journey ends with them returning to Antioch in Acts 14.28. And they're being commended for the work that they did. Then... The first missionary journey ends, and then it's not, it's not like, oh, now it's time for the second missionary journey. Now it's time for the Jerusalem Council, because there is something that's been happening in Judaism over the course of the 14 years or so, or probably 15 years by that point, uh, since Christianity emerges from Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem's down here. That's so good. Such a great map. Yeah, I'm just... The more I think about it, the more happy I am of it. Uh, <laughs> um, so think about what happened in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 11, uh, Peter takes the gospel to the Gentiles and the Holy Spirit falls upon them. And they say, how could we withhold baptism from these people? And so they baptize them. They bring them into the church. They make them part of the body of Christ in an official way. And now the church is left with this question. How do Jewish believers live around Gentiles? Right, you're, you're merging these two worlds, these two people who uh, before were like oil and water. You know, they're supposed to be by design. They're supposed to be distinct from one another. The Jews are especially have this duty to not look like the Gentiles, live like the Gentiles, eat like the Gentiles. So how are they supposed to live? Uh, what, do, what are believers supposed to expect of a Gentile as they come to Christ? What are the expectations for their lifestyle? And... The answer, the occasion for the council is there is one specific answer that has been bandied about, that has been circulating, that has become a practice in the church, and it is what we would call the teaching of the Judaizers. So the Judaizers are saying, you must do this. You must be circumcised, not to be considered just part of the church, but in order to be saved. They're saying, look, if you refuse to receive the sign that God gave to the Jews then you're refusing the Jewish Savior. You're refusing Christ. You're refusing to be part of his people. And so you're not saved at all. And so that's what's going on. That's what's being taught. And so you have essentially what Paul summarizes for us is a denial of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He's saying you don't have faith alone as, self, as the thing, the instrument by which you're saved if you have to add things to the work of Jesus. So the teaching becomes insidious. It's interesting, right? The problem is not what ends up becoming the problem. You know, the answer ends up not really being the problem. It ends up being the implications of the answer that end up being the problem, right? Am I supposed to sit and have a meal with somebody who's a Gentile? Essentially, that's how this starts. And then it ends with them saying, you must be baptized. You must. So it ends up starting, you know, answering one problem and then ends up coming up with a very different answer to the problem that ends up being more poisonous than the problem. And so, other than being contrary to God's will, here's what happens. Let's talk practically speaking. You're limiting the spread of the message of the gospel when you say you must be, essentially become a Jew in order to enter into Christ. So you have this theological crisis. You have a cultural crisis, right? This is a clashing of the Jewish identity with the Gentiles. How are they supposed to live together? 
It's bad enough that they say, we've got to have a council. This is the first Presbytery meeting. I'm a nerd. I try to emphasize this, that the elders get together and they all have a voice. They're able to speak. They're able to hear one another. They're able to listen to debate. They're able to engage. And then they end up coming to a decision together. And then what do they do? They send that decision out to all the churches. Um, This really is the first Presbytery meeting. Um, Maybe there are the Presbytery meetings before this, but this is the first real, like, significant Presbytery meeting that we know of in Scripture. Peter the Pope did not rule over it. <laughs> Papist. <laughs> uh, we'll straighten you out later. Um, so here they go. They meet together and they answer this question. Must we require that believers keep the ceremonial law? Are we going to require them to keep the ceremonial law? What does God require? And there are three arguments that were offered at the Jerusalem Council against the Judaizers. The first comes in a speech from Peter. Peter relates what happened at the home of Cornelius, where basically the spirit fell on a bunch of uncircumcised Gentiles. Essentially, it's exhibit A. It's exhibit A. They're not circumcised, and the spirit falls upon them. So there's an inference to be drawn from that. What would the inference be? They're not circumcised, and they've got the spirit. Right? It's not like when they were circumcised, the spirit fell upon them. That would actually indicate something that would send you in a very different direction. Um, it's their baptism. They get baptized and the spirit falls upon them. Um, Paul and Barnabas come with exhibit B. They bring exhibit B. They recall they have their own experiences with Gentiles in Asia Minor. And they saw many Gentiles coming to faith. So for them, they say, this is exhibit B. You have Gentiles coming to Christ all over the world and not being circumcised. Then you have James, the brother of Jesus. He speaks. And when he gets up to speak, he brings the Old Testament to bear. He opens up Amos 9 verses 11 to 12. And when he gives the speech, he concludes Gentiles are now part of the church. So that is exhibit C. So you have these sort of experiential arguments from Paul and Barnabas and uh, Uh, Peter, and then you have James coming with his own biblical argument. So um, the council agrees together that circumcision is not required, and they send a decree to the churches to make this very clear. Again, this is a very formative moment. This This is a big moment for the church. This is important. And they decree that you do not have to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, there's more in what they send out and in what they say uh, to keep it simple. I won't go through all of that. But when I was preaching this text, I'll just say it's really challenging. Some of the things that they they talk about. Um, You can ask me about it later, I suppose. Um, Now, here's what happens, though. Does this decision by the Jerusalem Council then eliminate the Judaizers? Do they just disintegrate after this? No, they do not. They basically dog Paul his whole ministry. As far as we can tell, he's dealing with them up to the very end. He's, he's constantly dealing with people who are trying to Judaize. They never seem to go away. Um, by the way, the word Judaize, does anyone know where that word comes from? Jews. It comes from the book of Acts where Paul is talking to, or actually it's not, I'm sorry, it's not Acts, it's Galatians, where Paul's recalling his conversation with Peter, and he says to Peter, do you Judaize, is actually the question that he asks Peter. He says, do you Judaize? 
Um, and that's the Greek word. Now, we translate it as require people to behave like Jews. You know, that's we translate it really clunky in English, but it's just one word in the Greek. Um, which that's just the way the Greek language is. You combine a bunch of words and objects and, you know, all into one word. But um, he says, do you Judaize? So that's, that's where that term comes from. Uh, Paul deals with these people throughout his whole ministry. And here's the thing I would just say, man-made religion, which Ju- the Judaizers, this is man-made religion. Man-made religion tends to believe there is something we must do in order to have peace with God. There's just something within us that says there is something I must do. There's something I can do. There's something I can contribute. And the Judaizers are feeding off of that impulse that there is something that I'm accountable for. And it's not just that God calls me to obey him once he's shown me grace, but it's that I have to obey him so that he will show me grace. And that's what they're doing. Um, And of course, Paul, his whole ministry never backs down from it. He absolutely sees how corrupting it is. And so he fights it every bit of the way. Uh, We'll we'll talk about that more when we look at Romans. Um, Second missionary journey. So here in chapter 15, verse 36 to chapter 18. So you have this two and a half chapters of scripture where Paul and Barnabas part ways. Now, who remembers, why do Paul and Barnabas part ways? Why, aren't they, why don't they stay together? Disagreement over Mark. So John Mark, if you remember, well, actually, you don't remember because I didn't say it. But if you know the narrative, then John Mark, in the middle of the first missionary journey, they're on, I think it's Cyprus, or is it when he gets to mainland. I'm going from memory, and that's dangerous for me. John Mark splits. John Mark goes back to Jerusalem, and uh, Paul and Barnabas finish the missionary journey. Second time comes around, what happens? John Mark wants to join again. He wants to go. Barnabas and Paul, you can see their different personalities here, right? Paul, you can tell he's a bit of a, a, is the word strickler or stickler? Stickler. Stickler, yeah. I don't know. He's a strict stickler. That's right. I'm going to combine them together and make a new word. There you go. All words are made up, to quote Thor. Uh, so, but he's, he's a stickler. Paul, Paul basically says, look, he bailed on us. We can't count on him. He's not going. And you almost can see, you know, Barnabas, brother of encouragement, this guy with a very different disposition going, we should give this guy a chance again. And they can't come to a resolution. They can't decide what they're supposed to do. And so they just say, look, we're just going to go two separate ways. Paul and, uh, sorry, Barnabas and John Mark are going to go one way, and Paul is going to take Silas, and he's going to go a different way. And so they leave, and they go on a, a two-year missionary journey. What does Paul do? He basically retraces his steps from his first missionary journey, but he does it in reverse. So he, he goes from, uh, he ministers in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens and Corinth. So, um, man, I, did, I do such a bad map. That's not even, that's not even Greece. Like that's, <laughs> it's so bad that I almost, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna renounce it now. <laughs> Just not helpful. Not helpful, really. Uh, so when he goes through, yeah, a strickler. <laughs> I'm a real strickler with my maps. 
So what does he do? He goes from, from Antioch. He ministers in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. And then he goes down through Greece. And he goes through Athens and Corinth. And when he's in Athens, he has his encounter at the Areopagus. And so uh, I don't know if any of you are, are, are keen on opening anything up. But in Acts chapter 17, he talks to the Areopagus. And Paul makes an argument. As he meets with these people, these are the philosophers. These are the thinkers. Now, by the time Paul is in Athens, uh, Athens has seen it better days when it comes to the philosophers, right? This is not, these are not the days of Plato and Aristotle. The days of Plato and Aristotle were hundreds of years before. These are the guys living in the aftermath of the limelight. These guys now, they know who Plato and Aristotle and Socrates are, and they're living sort of in, you know, in the afterglow. And now here they are, but they still reason themselves to be thinkers. They still think of themselves as intellectuals, and they're the kind of guys to sit around and never make decisions, but talk about words a lot. And so Paul goes and he meets with them and he looks around the city and he notices one thing. These are actually a very theological people. This is a people who are very interested in gods and the God, God and the gods. Um, but he makes an argument that their impulse to worship is right. So he wants to at least start off on sort of, um, of, of in a place where at least he's got an appreciation. So he says, I see that you are very religious people. Uh, and he says, uh, I passed along. I observed the objects of your worship. I found an altar with the inscription to, this, to the unknown God. And so he latches onto that and he makes an argument. He says, what you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. I'll just stop for a moment and just say he's denying everything they believe. He's denying. He's saying you guys are so far off base. You don't even understand the creator creature distinction. You don't realize that God is not part of the world. Uh, Instead, he says he says you guys keep bringing sacrifices to these gods and sacrificing and giving and you think that you're helping these gods to, 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 to exist. And he says, the creator, this unknown God, this one that you know you've missed, he's not like that at all. You guys need to completely rethink God. You need to rethink how you were created and where you came from. And so he says, he created you. He put you in this world. You're meant to feel your way toward him and find him. He says, he is not actually far from each one of us. In other words, it's not like God is over in Jerusalem and you guys in Athens can't get to him because he's so far away. That's not the problem. The problem is your hearts are fixated on creatures. You love creatures. You love things. You want to worship a creator who's like this stuff because you can manage him and you can hold him and you can contain him. And he can't tell you what to do or what to be like. That's what you guys like. If you were going to just wrap up what Paul is saying, he's basically getting at that. And they're intrigued, right? They're really interested. They say, oh, we want to hear more from you. Uh, Again, these are people who just, they could have, they could, Paul, it's interesting that Paul doesn't stay. It's like Paul knows he's done as much as he can here. This is a weird bunch. 
they want to hear ideas and that's all they want. They don't actually want to worship. This is not a group of worshipers. These are philosophers. And so he gets four converts out of the deal. Not bad. If I preached to a group of philosophers and four people joined me, I'd be really excited. And so he goes from Athens. He goes from Athens to Corinth. And then he goes across the Aegean Sea back to Ephesus. Then he goes across the Mediterranean back to Jerusalem, all the way down there to Jerusalem. And then he goes up the coast and returns to Antioch again. So this, the second missionary journey is at once retracing and checking on the churches that were planted the first time. But then he's also furthering the gospel as well. So there's intentional maintenance that's happening and there's also progress that's happening. Um, and if I remember right, uh, Barnabas and John Mark go to Cyprus when they leave. What are they doing? They're checking on the churches that they planted in Cyprus. So here was one of the things that when I was preaching through Acts, I was trying to, to think through, you know, we think of the, the, the split of Paul and Barnabas being just the worst thing, right? We think of it as being this disaster. Imagine the sort of evangelism that could have taken place if Paul and Barnabas had just stayed together. But actually, God's intentionally splitting them. What is he doing? They're maintaining these churches along the coast. And then John, Mark, and Barnabas are able to go and serve at this other church down in Cyprus. By multiplying, they're able to be of greater service to the church. And it's, it's in God's plan. And so sometimes we think, of, we think of church splits. We think of personalities. And we think of just like the hard things about the Christian life and being around other believers and maybe all we see is storm clouds. And, you know, I think that we need to see the silver lining when God does split people apart from each other or send people in different directions. Um, we need to remember that God is in charge and he, he broke up Paul and Barnabas. You know, he broke them up on purpose. So uh, that's the, the work of God. Then we've got the third missionary journey, which take, takes place from chapter 18 to 21. 18 to 21, it's a four-year journey. It's the longest of Paul's missionary journeys. Uh, again, where does it start? I already told you where it's going to start. Antioch, that's what that spot means, Antioch. <laughs> and he goes on this land journey across modern-day Turkey. So he's not on a boat. He's just, he's either walking or he's riding a camel. He's, he's not in a boat this time. And so he just goes on this long land journey across Asia Minor toward the coast, eventually getting to the Aegean Sea. He gets, on the, uh, gets to the Aegean, and then he goes around again to Greece. And on this journey, he founds the church in Ephesus. And if, I don't know if you know where it is, but it's basically on the coast of, of Turkey, on the Aegean Sea there. If you looked across from Ephesus, you'd be looking at Greece. And... So he founds the church in Ephesus. Uh, he ministers there for three years. Now, he doesn't stay three years anywhere, but he stays three years in Ephesus. Um, what is he doing? He's strengthening these churches. In Ephesus, he sees, for some reason, he sees a strategic need to be there longer. He's also able to minister to other churches that are in the region from Ephesus. You could imagine there being like a strategic advantage to being near the sea where this, where this city is. Um, but there's a big emphasis in his third missionary journey on the Ephesian church. 
Then he goes from Jerusalem to Rome. So when that third missionary journey is done, he goes to Jerusalem. But when he goes to Jerusalem, uh, he gets captured. Um, By the way, this part is just, it's exciting. Kids love it. Who doesn't like a shipwreck? Who doesn't like an exciting sea voyage and a storm? Uh, All of that's exciting. Uh, Princess bride type stuff, you know? Um, At least as far as journeying and being at sea. (laughs) Nothing else princess bride about this. Let's move on. Um, But almost the entire time, Paul's under under custody. I, I, I think this is the unofficial fourth missionary journey. So he's in Jerusalem. What happens? The Jewish opposition in Jerusalem is so pitched, the pressure is so sharp that the civil government takes him into custody. The Roman authorities have this balancing act that they are constantly following. You see it in the death of Jesus. You actually see it here as well. They rule Jerusalem and they want the Jews to remember that they rule Jerusalem. But it's almost like they even see that there's just like a point at which the the thread could be broken. If you stretch them too hard, right? So, so they try to get away with as much as they can with the Jewish people, but they know that there's a point at which the thread will break. And so there are these dynamics that sort of determine the death of Jesus, right? Pilate says, we can take some trouble with the Jews, but we can't take too much trouble with the Jews. And so he makes the decision to have Jesus executed. Similar, similar problem here. The Roman authorities don't see any problems with Paul, But the Jewish authorities throw such a fit that they actually go ahead and take Paul into custody. The difference between Jesus and Paul, one difference between Jesus and Paul, among many others, is that Paul's a Roman citizen. And so Paul has rights. Paul has privileges. uh, He has a, a right to due process. He also has a right to appeal his mistreatment. If he thinks he's being mistreated, he can appeal it. And so he does. He gets taken before the governor Festus. He defends himself. But ultimately, he says, I appeal to Caesar. I want to see Caesar. I want to go to him. I want to, as a citizen, uh, speak to him. And Festus tells him, actually, if you hadn't appealed to Caesar, I would have just let you go. So it's interesting how even Paul, you might think, oh, well, that's a strategic mistake on Paul's part. But again, does God, does God think that's a strategic mistake? No. He says, no, that's my intention. I wanted you in Rome. And so how does he get him to Rome? You know, he just... Puts him on a prison ship. He basically gets attached to a a guard and he gets sent off and he goes on a sea voyage. And um, we have to, you know, they have to see it through now. Now that he's made the appeal, he has to go. And uh, it's a harrowing journey. The weather's terrible. The the shipwreck uh, happens. Eventually, though, Paul is in Rome under house arrest at the end of the world, basically. And here he is. And he sends for the Jews, and he wants to make sure that they have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And that's basically where the book of, of, of Acts ends, with Paul in this position. Now, let's talk about themes. Uh, one theme is this, the inclusion of the Gentiles. If I didn't mention this, it would be, it would be very negligent on my part. Because that's what these 15 chapters are, chapters 13 through 28 is all about the inclusion of the Gentiles and how the gospel spreads and how these people uh, learn to receive the gospel and live in the gospel and grow churches and plant churches and then 
you know, all of the basics that we think of, of what you need in order to spread the gospel and set up churches. That's what's taking place. So, you know, for 2,000 years, Judaism was the center and Jerusalem was the center. And the covenant of grace that God made with Abraham was initiated in Genesis chapter 12, at least formally, it was initiated in Genesis chapter 12. And it was understood to apply to everybody who is a descendant to Abraham through his son, Jacob. So in other words, until the time of Jesus, the center of where salvation gravitated around was Abraham's own family. It's this one family in this one place. So when the gospel comes to the Gentiles and the spirit falls upon them, it blows that whole idea out of the water. So now what's, what's happening? God is calling on all men everywhere to repent. Salvation is for all who trust in Jesus. Um, the Bible teaches now that anyone who puts their faith in Jesus becomes a son of Abraham. In fact, that's always been the case. Everybody this whole time who put their trust in Jesus is a son of Abraham. And Paul uses this language to describe the Gentiles. He says that he uses the language of engrafting. It's engrafting. Uh, he borrows this from agriculture. This idea of taking one plant, making a part of another plant, and then as they grow together, they actually become part of the same thing. So the real point is that the gospel is not ethnically or ceremonially confined to one group anymore. And when Paul's making his case, he quotes from Isaiah 49.6. He's showing that this was foretold, that it was always God's plan, that it was not, again, I use this language of plan B. It was not plan B for Gentiles to be included. It wasn't like God said, oh, no, the Jewish people aren't responding. Well, I've got to find somebody to save. And then he includes the Gentiles. That's not what it is. Instead, this was his plan the entire time. Um, Let's see. Do I have... Uh, I already talked about the ceremonial law. I'm going to back off from talking about that. Um, another theme of this book, a major theme of... Yeah, Micah. If it's not plan B, why is language used uh, like in parables where the party is being thrown and all the guests who are primarily invited refuse to come and he's like, fine, go get the people... Sitting on the road, and he brings them all in. He goes, fine, go get the people in the hedges. And he says, fine, go get anyone anywhere. Drag them in. Yeah. Why, why? Why is if it's not a plan B? Why is that sort of language like where it seems that there was an initial plan and then it's changed to yeah. go get everyone? The purpose of those parables is to condemn unbelief among the Jewish people. Right? It's to say basically, look, you've been presented with this and you just reject it. You've been invited and you won't come. And so he's putting the blame where it belongs. That doesn't mean that, oh, well, I mean, in the context of the story, the way it sounds certainly does make it sound like plan B. But that's not what he's doing. He's instead putting the responsibility on them to believe, and they don't. Yeah, Jeff? That same same, uh, same, uh, stone that the builder rejected become the chief cornerstone. I've always imagined that was the same, same, same thing. Yeah, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Uh, who who quotes that? That it's Jesus, right? Yeah. Yeah, Jesus actually. Sorry, I. Like yeah, and he applies it to himself. So his rejection by the Jewish leaders is built in as part of it. I mean, that's where that quote, why that quote's so sufficient, uh, important, because 
it's always been known and planned that he would be rejected by the Jewish leaders. Thankfully, you know, you, I mean, you maybe perhaps, I don't know, maybe some of you have Jewish ethnicity or maybe you know people who are Jewish. I, one of my best friends in college uh, was a Jewish convert to Christianity. So it's great. It, the, the thing that still I am joyful about is that Jewish people even now still come to Christ. It's not like, oh, being Jewish means that you won't or you can't. Um, but it's certainly not what you would hope either. Uh, I'm not going to go further because I don't want to, you know, we're out of time basically. So instead, uh, I'm going to talk about two more things and then we'll talk about Paul. So next week when we come back, uh, I'll talk about the preaching of the word, which is really prominent in this book. And we will also talk about baptism. Uh, I'm going to make the case for what I call household baptism. And I'm going to show you three occurrences of household baptism in the book of Acts. And I'm going to point a few things out that uh, hopefully, actually, it'll be great because we're going to do a baptism, I think, next Sunday. So perfect timing. So we'll talk about it next week. Uh, let me close this in prayer and uh, let's go get the kids. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your plan was always to include outsiders in the covenant of grace. That your your plan was always to to have... Christ held out to these people who once at once were not your people and to make them your people. We thank you, Lord, that that is us, that we were a people who were not your people and now we are your people. We thank you that the gospel is for all who will believe. And we pray that we would be willing to share that with those that we come across even this week. I pray for opportunities. I pray that each of us would meet somebody who needs to hear words of grace in Christ and that we would have the boldness to speak them. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.